Please turn to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, as we begin the book of Daniel. While you're turning, Warren Wiersbe relates, From May to September 1787, the American Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia to develop a system of government for the new nation. By June 28th, progress had been so slow that Benjamin Franklin stood and addressed George Washington, president of the convention. Among other things, he said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. He then moved that they invite some of the local clergy to come to the assembly and lead them in prayer for divine guidance. The motion would have passed, except that the convention had no budget for paying visiting chaplains. thought that was ironic. Daniel has a message that we desperately need to hear today, that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. Now, the background of the book, of course, Daniel is the author of Daniel, strangely enough. Some people get confused because uh, Daniel modestly speaks of himself in the third person at the beginning of the book. But by the last half of the book, he's referring to himself in the first person as Daniel, I, Daniel. Jesus Christ, whose opinion has to count for something, believed that Daniel authored the book. Um, we see that in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. He speaks of the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So Jesus Christ lent his authority to Daniel's authorship of the book. The book of Daniel was probably composed in the last decade of Daniel's long life, which would have been around 530 B.C. or the 6th century, you know, if you think of it that way. Daniel's theme is that God is sovereign over the nations. That's something that is timeless. We always need to hear that. In Daniel's day, especially needed to hear that because Israel was exiled from their land and suffering in a foreign land, a foreign pagan land. Now the implication of God being sovereign over the nation, that nations, that means that Gentiles should be warned and respect, if not worship, Israel's God. Israel should be encouraged. No matter how dark things appear, God is in control and he has a plan. And history is moving somewhere. History is moving toward the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's not just careening out of control. All things that are good for us to know today as well. Locations involved. A place of composition was mainly Babylon. Uh, Daniel, of course, traveled all over the Babylonian and Persian empires in the course of his duties. But his main base of operation seems to have been Babylon, the city of Babylon. His destination was both to Jew and Gentile, as we'll see. Therefore, the destination of this book was truly worldwide. It's not sent to just one city. It's sent throughout the empire. He writes, during the reigns of Babylonian kings Nebopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, um, from 605 to 562 B.C., um, he doesn't mention, but he also lived during the reigns of Evil Merodach, another Babylonian king, Neriglasar, another one, and Labashi Marduk, 
Labashi Marduk is kind of a sad story. He only lasted two months as uh, king of Babylon. Uh, and then Nabonidus, who decided the job of king must have been too rough for him, and so he took an extended vacation in uh, Arabia and wasn't even there when the city fell uh, to the Persians. Uh, and then Belsha Belshazzar, who was the co-regent with Nabonidus, who was unfortunate enough to be there when the city fell to the Persian army uh, in 539 B.C. Daniel continues then all the way down to Cyrus's reign um, in 530, that began in 539 B.C. His last vision uh, was, at, uh, was 536 B.C. And it's about the time that Cyrus allowed the exiles to return. So Daniel goes from one end of the captivity all the way to the return. Lived through two kingdoms. He lived through the two deportations of the Israelites. The first, he was in the first one in 605. Second one in 597 got Ezekiel. And uh, who prophesied outside the land also. And then finally the temple was destroyed somewhere, depending upon your chronology, between 586 and 588 B.C. A lot happened. A lot happened. Hard times. The style is kind of peculiar. This, this book is unique. Well, not unique, because Ezra does this too. But it's very unusual in that it's in two languages. It's in Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, you may notice in your in your Bible in chapter two, verse four, it says, "Now the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic." Okay, at that point it switches to Aramaic, and everything from there on to 7:28 is in Aramaic. Now Aramaic and he and the rest is in Hebrew on either end of it, of course. Now, why would he do that? Aramaic and Hebrew are very closely related languages. Uh, if I say peace in Hebrew, I say shalom. If I say peace in Aramaic, I say shalama. You can kind of see how we got to Arabic salam. You know, it's kind of an evolution of language there. But Aramaic is related. Dutch and German, you know, that sort of thing. Kind of similar. There's a lot of similarities, but it's not the same language. Why would Daniel do that? Why would he swap languages? This is confused people for a while until he started looking at the subject matter of what he was talking about. And in the Aramaic section are things that would be of particular interest to Gentiles. And Aramaic was the international language of commerce and diplomacy in Daniel's day. There were a number of languages, as we'll see, language studies are part of what they had to go through, but it was the language of choice for international commerce, for diplomacy, for publishing decrees, that sort of thing. And so Aramaic was a natural for Daniel to write in if he wanted to reach a Gentile audience. If he wanted to reach a non-Jewish audience. But then in beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, it reverts to Hebrew. And that would be well suited for reaching a Jewish audience. And Interestingly enough, the subject matter from chapter 8 through 12 are things that would be of primary interest to Jews. So it's very interesting how the, the book is divided that way and how it uses two languages. Um, it is apocalyptic style literature. 
And that's relatively rare in the Bible. Uh, Daniel and the book of Revelation are the two main examples. And so we've seen that sort of literature before. Um, also, parts of Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah could be classified that way too. Just parts of it. But this, uh, Daniel is entirely apocalyptic, so is Revelation. It consists mainly of dreams and visions which are then interpreted or explained uh, to often by angels yeah, or, uh, or so occasionally by God himself. The explanation, though, is always given and we're not left to come up with our own creative ideas, which is a really good thing. Um, there have been some really wild interpretations put on the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel because people didn't look at the context to see what it said about the vision or the symbol involved. And... Also, it, a lot of error has happened because people didn't compare Daniel and Revelation. They dovetail very, very well in their symbols. If, it's, if a symbol is not explained in the book of Revelation, bet you a Coke it's in the book of Daniel. You know, it just almost always happens that way. I don't think I'll end up buying too many Cokes on that. Um, so, its place in the Bible is also kind of interesting. Now, in our Bible, you can't see this because it's listed with the major prophets. You know, uh, so it kind of obscures it. But in the Jewish Old Testament, this book is placed with the writings, with Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and that sort of thing. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they put it with the prophecies? Well, it's, I don't think it implies any disrespect for Daniel. It merely acknowledges that although he prophesied, Daniel is primarily what? Not a prophet, but a statesman. He's also different in that his, his message was not for the nation or the nations during his lifetime, but at the end of his life, he put together a book. So he's different there too, because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all preached the message God gave them during their lifetime. Not so Daniel. He was a statesman. By, uh, that was his job, if you will. Daniel is frequently alluded to in the New Testament. Now, it's not quoted so many times, but it is alluded to. Things that are themes in Daniel, almost quotes, uh, especially in Revelation. They're all over the place. Again, so you really have a hard time understanding Revelation unless you refer to Daniel, and vice versa. Now, Daniel has drawn a lot of fire. Um, I call this Daniel in the critic's den. You know, because <laughs> the lion's den. Because What's the problem? Why does Daniel make the critics see red? Well, Daniel makes accurate prediction, predictions about future events. That bothers people of a skeptical mindset. Well, how can he be that accurate? He can't be. There's, it argues like this. There's no such thing as prophecy. Daniel seems to prophesy, so Daniel can't be legitimate. There's got to be something wrong with Daniel. That is reasoning in a circle. They don't believe in prophecy. Got to have some other explanation. So, they've tried to argue against the book of Daniel by basically three different attacks. First, they claim a date that he's really dated between the Maccabee, uh, around the Maccabean period in the 2nd century before Christ. 
uh, the 160s to be precise, about the time that the Jews rebelled against the, um, the, the Syrians and uh, threw off their yoke, rather than in the 6th century BC. They've, that's been the claim. They've also claimed that the language is full of words inconsistent with a 6th century B.C. date. Namely, uh, oh, the Aramaic is wrong, they've got Greek loan words, they've got Aramaic loan words, that sort of thing. And then the third one is the one that I dismissed kind of out of hand, and that is claiming prophecy can't happen. Well, that's certainly a case of begging the question if there ever was one. That's assuming what you want, what you want to prove. So... This, it can't be a legitimate prophecy because there aren't legitimate prophecies, so it can't be a legitimate prophecy. That's like saying it's so because I told you so. Yeah, that carries no weight, I think, and I'm sure you, you folks can see through that also. So that, um, that doesn't really need a refutation, but we need to look at the others. For instance, what is the evidence? Is it possible Daniel was written around 160 B.C.? Well, that would be tough. Because Daniel is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was done approximately 250 years before Christ. So 250 years before Christ is a lot further back than 160. And it had to already be part of the Hebrew Scriptures in order to be considered for translation into Greek for the Septuagint. So that would stand against it being dated that late. The Dead Sea Scrolls are another thing. Uh, they have found Daniel manuscripts among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Therefore, it must have all, these are in Hebrew, okay? It must already have been accepted as scripture before the second century BC, when the earliest Dead, Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts uh, date to. And then another interesting piece of history is what happened when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem. Uh, Alexander and the Greeks figure prominently in prophecy in the book of da Daniel, as we'll see later. But Flavius Josephus, the historian, records that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, he was met outside the city by the high priest and was absolutely taken aback to be shown a scroll of Daniel that prophesied that he would defeat the Persians, which he had just done. Okay, at the Battle of Gogomela. So that won the Jews' favor with Alexander the Great, and he treated them very well because of that. So all of those things are pre-Maccabean by, by century or centuries. So it's really hard to see how it could be dated so late. That um, just doesn't hold water, I don't believe, uh, because of the history. Also, Scripture itself, in, in the person of the prophet Ezekiel, mentions Daniel as a historical person. Even though these three men, Daniel, Noah, and Job, were in its midst, Ezekiel said, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declared the Lord God. Talking about how, how rotten things had gotten in Jerusalem. He also said, repeated that again a little later. He said, even though, the Lord said, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. And then in chapter 28, Ezekiel says, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that's a match for you. 
So Daniel is spoken of by Ezekiel, a contemporary, as a historical person. So there's no reason for this extreme historical skepticism about Daniel. What about the language stuff? And, and you know, this gets very technical, but if you boil it all down, um, one argument says, well, it's the wrong sort of Aramaic. Okay, this is a later Aramaic and it's Western. Well, that theory was a couple hundred years old now, and it's been shot down entirely by archaeology. As they find more documents, the more they find out that just is not so. That is, it, Daniel's Aramaic is perfectly suitable for the time period. Uh, what about the Persian words? Got a bunch of Persian words in there, they say. Well, Daniel served in the Persian Empire, as well as the Babylonian. So the book of Daniel, a matter of fact, was likely uh, composed during the Persian period. So it's hardly shocking that we find some Persian words, right? That'd be like somebody saying, well, a document that they found in, in 2010 in North Texas was, was invalid because it used a couple of Spanish words. Well, I'm sorry, that's not, uh, that's not shocking. Yeah, so those two don't hold together. Now, the stronger argument, but still not very worthwhile, is the argument that, well, there's a bunch of Greek loan words in here, and if it was during the Maccabean period, then there would be Greek loan words. And so, see, that proves it's Maccabean period. But this is one of those, when you look at it closely, and I heard this, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what, what, what is the substance to this. So I started looking into the argument. You know how many Greek words have been identified in Daniel? Three. Three and only three. You know what else? They're in one verse. In Daniel 3, 5. And they're all musical instruments. Now how many would invalidate a letter from, uh, from uh, Dave because it mentioned a guitar? Well, guitar is a Spanish word. You know? They say, oh, see? That's not really an English speaker writing that. It's got a Spanish word in it. Guitar. <laughs> okay. Well, gee, or tuba. That's a Latin word. Say, well, that must have been written, you know, in the first century. You know, it means a trumpet then, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, those three words, okay, all from Daniel three five, all musical instruments. Now, if Daniel had actually been written in the second century B.C. in the one sixties, when Israel and written in Israel to try to encourage the Maccabean revolt. And the Seleucid uh, Syrians were, were running Israel at that time and trying to eliminate the Jewish religion and trying to turn everybody into Greeks. You know how many Greek words we would expect? We would expect a whole bunch of them, you know, because they were trying to ram Greek culture down their throats, literally. Okay, so three loan words. Now, those words aren't, aren't really surprising either. Besides the fact that it's minor and it's musical instruments. But for 100 years before Daniel, there were Greek mercenaries in the Assyrian army. Okay, the Greeks weren't unified. Their soldiers fought as mercenaries all the time in the Middle East. Greek mercenaries also served in Nebuchadnezzar's army. And little known fact, but at the Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Thermopylae, all those famous battles that, you know, the Greeks get all puffed up about their patriotism. Well, there were Greeks fighting on both sides. There were Greeks fighting for the Persians, too. 
for the highest bidder. You know, so yeah, there was those 300 Spartan guys did a good job, but the other side had Greeks also. You know, they bought them. So there are Greek mercenaries all over the place. Well, it goes with with the mercenaries, their language. You know, and so gee, if we only picked up three words, that's kind of amazing. Again, because there's a long history of Greek mercenaries all over the place during that time period. So. Daniel survives the critic's den just like he does the lion's den. There's no reason for this undue skepticism. It's just a bias, an anti-supernatural bias. And they're made nervous because Daniel's prophecies are really accurate. So, instead of trying to find some way to ignore it, I think Daniel's prophecies deserve to be looked into. Definitely. Now, let's talk about the Israeli captives, the four Israeli captives. And basically, this, break, this section kind of serves as an introduction. It breaks down into, um, very nicely, into several parts. That we have the captives in Babylon. Then we have the introduction of the captives, where we find out their names. And... Uh, then we're talk, we see them in conf, the captives in conflict, and finally we see them in Nebuchadnezzar's service. So looking at verse 1, we find out how Daniel and his friends ended up in Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That year is 605 B.C. Um, very important year for Nebuchadnezzar. He started that year a son of a king, and he ended up the king because his father Nebuchadnezzar passed away during the during the fighting that he was engaged in. So Nebuchadnezzar had met and defeated the Egyptian army of Pharaoh Necho and the remnant of Assyria. See, Assyria was the world power before Babylonia, and the Babylonians turned on the Assyrians. They were the the vassals of the Assyrians. They had turned on them defeated them soundly, and what was left of the Assyrian Empire tried to regroup and make an alliance with Egypt. They met at a place in Syria called Carchemish. And the Battle of Carchemish is one of those turning points in world history. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar won, and in May to June, won a decisive victory there, completely routing the Egyptian army, sending it packing back to Egypt and, and completely defeating what was left of Assyria. So the Assyrian Empire you know, vanishes off the pages of history uh, at that point. Oh, by the way, just a, little, just a little side note, but from today's news, you hear the uh, modern name of the capital of the Assyrian Empire all the time. You ever hear of Mosul, Iraq? Yeah, the site of Nineveh is just directly across the river from it. Yeah, so, modern Mosul, Nineveh. So, where Jonah preached, but that's another story. We'll get to that book one of these days. Uh, okay. So, Nebuchadnezzar had defeated them in May and June. 
And then he had started to work his way south and conquering Syria and that area and headed toward Israel. Now, Jehoiakim was in trouble because he had made an alliance with the Egyptians also. And he was supposed to be paying tribute to the Babylonians and, you know, his confidence being boistered by his alliance with uh, Egypt, he said, not going to pay your tribute, not going to give you any money. Oh, that got Nebuchadnezzar mad at him. And so he's working his way south. He got a little reprieve in August because his father died. And so he rushes back to Babylon, gets crowned, and then heads, heads south again. And by September, he's laying siege to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem falls. His name, by the way, just... These are interesting names. Nebuchadnezzar mean, you know, in case you ever wondered, where do they get a name like Nebuchadnezzar? You know, look at today's newspapers. It's no worse than Kim Jong-il. Uh, but, but Nebuchadnezzar means Nebu, which is one of their gods, has protected my inheritance or my boundary. That was interesting. So, protected it long enough for him to go back and get it in August, I guess. Well, some have seen an error here, by the way, because Daniel says that these events took place in the third year of Jehoiakim, but Jeremiah says it was the fourth year. The answer is that there's two different systems of counting the years of a king's reign, and there's the Babylonian system, and there's the Israeli system. The Israeli system, which is what Jeremiah used, you assume office, that's your first year second year from there, etc., etc. Babylonian system says, no, no, this first year was where you're ascending to the throne. Then after a year on New Year's, we'll start counting, you know, year one, year two. So there's a one-year difference between the two. It's not a mistake at all. Daniel, who was an official in the court of Babylon, was using the Babylonian system. Surprise, surprise. So, no problem here. Um... Note that God gave Jehoiakim in defeat to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some vessels from the temple. That's an, an important phrase in this section because phrases like God gave or the Lord gave in this passage indicate that whatever's happening, God's still sovereignly in control. You could look at it and think, well, Jehoiakim has been captured. What a calamity. No. God was in control. God gave him over. So, it's ironic too, because the Hebrew name Jehoiakim means the one the Lord has set up. <laughs> well, nevertheless, God took him down. Yeah, he, did, he set him up, but he took him down too. Well, Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels from the temple of God to Babylon to be stored in the temple treasury of his God. That'd be the Babylonian god Marduk, probably. It was the main Babylonian god. This seemed to be a political and a religious defeat. Pagans would look at that and say, see, the God of Israel is not very strong. Nebuchadnezzar defeated him and looted his temple. But scripture makes it plain. Nebuchadnezzar and the gods of Babylon did not defeat the Lord. God had handed them over. Now, won't go into it because it would take a while. It would be a study in and of itself. But... One of the covenants God made with Israel, the what I call the land covenant, some call the Palestinian covenant, is in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 30. It's not part of the Mosaic covenant, it's a separate covenant, and it goes to at, at 
to pains to point that out. They promised, God promised Israel the land forever. But he also promised them if they sinned and rebelled, he'd kick them out temporarily. So you can expect that. And it even spells out how many times he's going to kick them out. Okay? Interestingly enough. Three exiles, three returns. Guess what stage we're in now. But that's another story. Okay, so God's in control. It happened according to his covenant. It happened just like he said. He's in control. He did not suffer a defeat. But he would rather have them kicked out of the land than staying in the land, you know, giving him a bad name because of how vile and, and idolatrous they'd gotten. Okay. Curious thing about that, when the Jews came back from Babylon, no more temptation toward idolatry. That was over. It's like God said, you like idols? I'll send you someplace that's got a lot of idols. Okay? And they got thoroughly sick of it. And ever, ever since then, the, you know, you don't find Jews having any temptation whatsoever to set up idols. You know, that was a problem before them, not after. God cured them. Kind of aversion therapy. Okay. <laughs> then we introduce the Israeli captives. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom were, was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to take Israeli hostages from the royal family and from the nobles. Uh, the name Ashpenaz may be a title rather than a proper name. It probably means chief of the household. Um, there's a Hebrew word here translated officials that taken at face value would mean eunuch. Okay. Uh, the, pro the prophet Isaiah did warn King Hezekiah of Judah that, quote, some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials, or as the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard, the NET, NIV, and the New King James all say, eunuchs, in the palace of the king of Babylon. <coughs> May have happened to Daniel and his friends. Don't know. There's some debate about that. But if, if it was done, it was done to prevent high officials from becoming potential threats to the royal family because they wouldn't, not to the royal dynasty, because they wouldn't be able to raise up heirs. So they wouldn't be able to take control. Ezekiel, as we said, was deported in 597 and the temple was destroyed when, he came, when Nebuchadnezzar came the third time in 586-88. Now, these young men had potential for royal service. They were to be good-looking. Don't want any ugly people in the presence of the king. I'm sorry, that's what it says. They were to be without physical defect. They were to be intelligent. 
Don't wait dumb people in the king's presence either. Understanding and discerning. Um, and the word translated defect here, I, I've heard some preaching where so other well, they were morally upright and that now actually it means physical defect. Okay, so no club feet or anything like that. Uh, the Hebrew word translated showing intelligence here means skillful. Therefore, translation skillful in all wisdom or well versed in all kinds of wisdom would be a better translation. Um, the phrase translated endowed with understanding is literally knowing knowledge. Like that one. What do you do with knowledge? You know it. Um, therefore, knowledgeable would be a better translation. Some translations have that. The second term for knowledge here means thought. Well, it's been translated having keen insight uh, or perceptive. I like that, that they're thinkers. You know, he didn't want just that they were good at parroting back answers. They want people that think. Uh, the Hebrew phrase translated for serving in the king's court is literally standing in the king's palace. Uh, and finally, just defining all these terms because there's a lot of them. Uh, the Hebrew word for Chaldeans here, kostim, is an ethnic term. It's a Babylonian word from kostu. It refers to people dwelling in the lower Euphrates and Tigris rivers. It's uh, right in the vicinity of Babylon. That, that area there. So apparently that was the creme de la creme. Ancient empires, though they may have been wide, uh, far-flung empires, but they still thought of themselves as city-states with just a large area. You know? And so Babylon ruled the roost. Everything was for the benefit of Babylon. You know, and don't you forget. So, Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz to see that they were taught the language and literature of Babylon. Uh, he appointed their food and wine from his personal supply and directed they be trained for three years with a view toward entering his service or literally to stand before the king. And we're finally introduced to the names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were among the captives. Now, the Hebrew name, Daniel, means God is my judge. The name Hananiah, mean, or Hananiah, we'd say in English, means the Lord has been gracious to me. The Hebrew name Mishael, which is actually the way it is pronounced, means who is what God is, or who is like God. It's, it's, a, it's a praise. I think that's interesting. It's, very, it's actually... Um, linguistically the same as Michael, Michael. It's interesting to me. That's the name of one archangel. You know, that there's an archangel that uh, his message is, who's like God? And the answer implied is nobody. <laughs> you know, nobody's like God. The name Azariah, or Azariah in English, means the Lord has helped me. So they have good names. They have names that reflect Israel's God. And what they do to him? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's chief of, offic of officials gave the Israeli captives new names in an attempt to assimilate them. They wanted to make good Babylonians out of them. So you can't be running around with this, these Hebrew names. You've got to have a good Babylonian name. Daniel was given the new name Belteshazzar. That means Bel, protect his life. Bel is one of, the, one of the Babylonian gods. Interestingly enough, Daniel never used that name for himself. You look through the whole book of Daniel. It never says, I, Belteshazzar. So, you know, there's a little bit of resistance there to that one. 
Even the Babylonians who referred to him have to refer to him as Daniel also in order to be clear. They have to say Daniel who is also called Belteshazzar. You know, even when the Babylonians refer to him. Hananiah was renamed Shadrach. That means command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael was dubbed Meshach, which means who is what Aku, the moon god, is. So he changed it from a praise of God to a praise of the moon god. Azariah was named Abednego. That means servant of Nebo, Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god. The god of boundaries, borders. All of those names involve Babylonian gods. Now, this is a clear instance of what Paul warned us of in, in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. Literally, don't let this, wor this world force you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Daniel was a transformer, as we'll see. Yeah. Now, the rest of chapter 1 demonstrates Daniel resisted this attempt at, at, uh, at assimilation. Now, the third thing we see is we see the Israeli captives in conflict. See, Daniel had a kosher concern. I like that KK sound. But anyway, kosher concern. But Daniel made up his mind, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel decided he wasn't going to eat the royal food and wine and become defiled. The Babylonians certainly would have offered that food to, the, to their gods, and they certainly would not have used kosher standards in slaughtering. Therefore, he sought permission to eat a different diet. It says, now God granted, hmm, another God gave here, by the way. Uh, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths or your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Here's that second God gave. God gave him favor and compassion. Yeah. God inclined or disposed the chief officer to be kind and compassionate toward Daniel. But the chief officer had a concern too, didn't he? He had a kingly concern, not a kosher concern. He was justifiably concerned if Daniel looked unhealthy and Nebuchadnezzar would decapitate him for not taking good care of him. You know? The retirement plan is a little brutal. <laughs> so, but notice he wasn't trying to make Daniel sin. He was just trying to protect himself and look after Daniel's health at the same time. So Daniel came up with a creative alternative. Verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed by your presence, in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So, instead of the chief official, he approached the overseer. That was one change. Perhaps sometimes, you know, the underling can risk something the top guy can't. And note, by the way, they're using their Hebrew names, not their Babylonian ones. Um... He had, in, had discerned that they're not trying to cause him to sin. 
So instead of civil disobedience, instead of saying, no, I simply won't do it, kill me if you must, instead of that, he chose a creative alternative. He proposed a vegetarian diet with water to drink for 10 days. Now, that's not promoting vegetarianism necessarily. It's just saying that in situations where keeping kosher is difficult, even today, many Orthodox Jews will opt for vegetarian diet because it's real easy to keep kosher on a vegetarian diet. And at the end, the overseer could take a look and, and see. So that was the proposal. They tested it, verses 14 and through 16. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better than, and they were, I love this, fatter than all the youths had been eating the, ching, the king's choice food. I guess they liked them plump in Babylon. I don't know. Uh, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So the test was successful. They got to continue their vegetarian diet. They got to keep kosher. But Daniel did it tactfully. He did it respectfully because he knew they weren't trying to make him sin. They were just in ignorance, you know, holding up that standard. And then the last thing you see is the, these Israeli captives in service. You see a God-given excellence. But as for these four use, God gave. There it is again. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. That's the third God gave in this chapter. Daniel and his three friends had, had a God-given excellence in literature and wisdom. and The Hebrew word translated intelligence here, again, means skill. So it's just not talking about their IQ. He's talking about their ability to perform. It's been translated even knowledge and skill. And God gave Daniel understanding of dreams and visions. He'll put that to good use, won't he, uh, throughout the rest of this book. And then we finally see them entering Nebuchadnezzar's personal service. At the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. At the end of those three years, they were presented before King Nebuchadnezzar, who personally gave them an oral exam. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are at the top of their class. So they entered the king's personal service in 602 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar found them an order of magnitude better, ten times better, than the magicians and the conjurers of his realm. I think that that might be the reason why he started this whole program of the three-year school for promising captives. Because perhaps he was attempting to raise up a new order of advisors. As one of the sub-themes in Daniel is you find out the magicians and the conjurers and the others he'd been using for advisors are not worth much. <laughs> so it's possible that's why he was looking abroad for talent. The Hebrew word translated magician here primarily means an engraver or a writer. But it came to, be, to mean one possessed of occult knowledge, diviner, an astrologer because astrologers made charts. Okay, so a writer... 
at that time, I would hasten to point out there is no di difference in Babylon between astrology and astronomy. Okay, uh, that used to really irritate me as an amateur astronomer because you know I'd say you know, people say, "Well, what's your hobby?" And I say, "Well, I'm an amateur astronomer." And they go, "Well, could you cast me a horoscope?" No. I said, astronomy, not astrology. <laughs> you know, it's really irritating. But uh, back in that day, though, there wasn't a difference. So, you know, Daniel could have approached it as a science, but the rest of them were approaching it as an occult art. But he and his friends were required to be knowledgeable about even those occult arts, but not practitioners of. There's nowhere in the book of Daniel where it talks about them using those methods. But he had to be knowledgeable about them. Sometimes in school you're required to learn stuff that is not from a godly perspective. It's okay to learn it. You should know all about the theory of evolution, for instance. But don't buy into it. But you should know about it. You know, how can you discuss it if you don't know about it? So... If Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. and given three-year course in Babylonian language and literature, he entered Nebuchadnezzar's service in 602. He continued in royal service 64 years until the first year of Cyrus, or 538 B.C. And he had a final revelation two years after his retirement in 536 B.C., according to Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. So if he was taken captive at age uh, 16... He received his last vision about age 85. So yeah, it's that's why I say it's a pretty safe bet that the book of Daniel was written in the latter days, years of his life. Yeah. Uh, and then published probably after his death, actually. Yeah. How do we apply this? Well, first of all, it introduced us to the main characters, you know, and we'll see more about what happens to them later in uh, in our studies. But it also has a message in that first chapter and throughout the book. No matter what the outward circumstances, God is in control. Imagine, you know, for us it would be like China and Russia invade the United States. Okay, and uh, we're conquered. We are an oppressed, conquered people. And say even more that they decided to exile you to Europe. Okay. Oh, France. Ooh. Anyway, <laughs> kidding, Brigitte. Uh, but anyway, you know, you would be upset. You know, you would go. You would wonder, well, where's where's God? Well, the answer is in control. No matter how bad it gets. It also tells us to discern the intent of those in authority when they do when they order us to do things that might conflict with our principles. You know, not all the time are they trying to make you sin. And therefore, we should, like Daniel, when it's the intent is not to make a sin, look for creative alternatives. Ask God to give you wisdom there. That maybe there is a way you can hold to your standards and please the authority. Yeah. We'll see elsewhere in the book, sometimes you get the other situation where, yeah, they are trying to make you sin. And there is no way, to, no way then but to simply go, no. But you need to discern between the two. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this word. And I just pray that, um, that like Daniel and, and his three friends, that we would be willing 
to rely on you and to take a stand. Lord, give us discernment to know the right way to take a stand. And give us creative alternatives. Lord, I pray also that we would have a confidence in you that no matter what happens, you are in control. The world is not spinning out of control. But you are in the driver's seat. And that we can trust you no matter what our circumstances. We praise your name for this good word. In Jesus' name, amen.